I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, the Naked Scientist Sense Month continues with a look at the science of smell, including how we can learn smells in our sleep and the dogs that can smell when their owners are having a nightmare. Plus, a marathon-running physiologist, plastic-munching bacteria, and how an oversized spleen helps a group of divers to hold their breath for longer. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Plastics are incredible materials which have arguably transformed the quality of modern life. But they come at a huge cost, which is that because they're chemically unnatural, nature hasn't evolved an efficient way to deal with them, so they accumulate and damage the environment. However, there are some plastic-like chemicals that are used in nature, including by plants to protect their leaves. So some bacteria do carry enzymes, which are biological catalysts, that are capable of attacking these substances. And a couple of years ago, scientists in Japan discovered bacteria carrying a mutated form of one of these enzymes that was enabling them to degrade PET, which is one of the commonest forms of man-made plastic. Now, John McGeehan at the University of Portsmouth has assembled a 3D model of this mutant plastic-eating enzyme to understand how it works and to help him to discover how to make it work even better. Everyone's very aware of the problem, thanks to things like uh, David Attenborough and Blue Planet, really horrific images, really, of plastic uh, leaking into our oceans and, and residing there for a long time. Now, why are plastics particularly resilient? Why is it very hard for a microbe to grapple with them and break them down? Without going into too much detail, we need to understand how plastic is made in the first place. It's basically two building blocks that are pulled together to form a very strong bond. It's called an ester bond. And if you look at the label on your jacket or your fleece, you'll see the word polyester. And all that means is a long chain full of all these bonds. Now, these sorts of bonds exist in nature and plant leaves are covered in a material called cutin that protects them from invading bacteria. That is also a natural polyester and enzymes have evolved over millions of years to eat that material. Plastics are a bit wider because they contain an aromatic compound called terephthalic acid. That gives us PET. Um, that's where it comes from. Those things don't fit into natural enzymes very easily. But in this paper, you're describing one particular class of microorganism that does appear to be able, or at least has taken some steps to begin to degrade these things. It's fascinating what's happened. When we looked at the 3D structure of this enzyme, we were stunned to see how similar it was to a natural enzyme called acutinase, the, the type of enzyme a bacteria used to, to invade a, a leaf cell, for example. Um, the only difference is actually that the active site, the bit that does the, the chemistry, is opened up to be wider in order to accommodate this man-made substance. This was first described by the Japanese, this um, class of microorganisms, wasn't it? It's Idionella sakaiensis. Yes. Um, where did they get it? They actually found it in the soil and, and wastewater runoff of a plastic recycling plant in Japan. And it was there why? 
because bacteria are incredible organisms. If there's a community of bacteria and one bacterium makes a mutation to allow it to survive on a new substrate, a new food that no one else is eating, it will grow exponentially very quickly and outgrow the other bacteria. So there's a massive selection pressure within a recycling plant, for example, for anything that can eat that substrate, in this case, PET. So you decided to, to ask well, how have they endowed their, their biochemistry with this ability? And you, you found that they have altered their enzymes subtly. Is the change that they've made as good as it's going to get? Or do your models predict that actually with some further tweaks, they could become a lot more efficient? So once you get a 3D structure, the first thing you do is compare it to the ancestral, uh, in this case, cutinase enzyme, uh, to see what's changed. How has it evolved? What we're doing now is to see if we can unpick what are the important parts of the enzyme and how to make it better. But the potential for doing that is now huge. And how are you going about trying to optimise the enzyme in that way? So we use the, the 3D structure as a kind of starting point. And what we do is nowadays it's very easy to make synthetic DNA. So we can go in and make uh, very, very specific changes, which changes the shape of the enzyme, particularly around the parts of the enzyme that recognise and bind the, the plastic. So, so that's what we're currently engaged with. Let's hope they are successful. And with 12 billion tonnes of plastic predicted to be in landfill by 2050, we really do need that solution and soon. That was John McGeehan, and he was discussing the work that he's just published in the journal PNAS. Chris, how long would you say you can hold your breath underwater? I'm actually very good at this. I don't know why, but I can do several lengths of a short swimming pool and a full length of a big, you know, like Olympic swimming pool underwater, no problem. I'm terribly unfit. I terrible swimming on the surface but i have really good breath retention time my kids uh, think i've drowned when i go under there but um it's good if ever i go down on a ship or something (laughs) i I should be able to swim out you'll be the one person who survives well you might have a big spleen chris and i'll tell you why in a second because most people can hold their breath for about 30 to 40 seconds but there's a population of sea nomads called the bajo who live a marine hunter-gatherer lifestyle over the seas of southeast asia and they can routinely manage to remain submerged at considerable depths for minutes at a time on just one lungful of air and it turns out that their larger than average spleen, the spleen is the fist-sized immune organ that sits at the top left of your abdomen, is what enables them to do this, as I heard from Melissa Ilardo. What we found was that they've in fact adapted in a number of ways, but one of those ways is through bigger spleen size. And you might wonder what that has to do with diving, um, but it turns out that when you dive, it activates this um, dive, human dive response. And this is present in a number of diving mammals. And so what happens is first your heart rate slows down, then you have peripheral vasoconstriction, so your blood vessels actually get smaller to preserve the oxygenated blood for your internal organs. And then the last thing that happens is this contraction of the spleen. The spleen holds oxygenated red blood cells, and by contracting it gives you this oxygen boost. So we believe that this larger spleen adaptation that we see in the bajo, where a group of these sea nomads is allowing them to dive for longer. How did you find out these people had large spleens? It's not exactly an external organ, is it? (laughs) No, no. So I actually took a portable ultrasound machine down with me to Indonesia, and I took images of these people's spleens. So it was a little bit of a weird request um, to meet someone and say, hey, can I take a picture of your spleen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a bit awkward. Yeah, a little. (laughs) Was there a way of finding out whether this was a sort of 
an adaptation that came within life. So just practicing diving makes your spleen grow or there's something else going on? Yeah, that was actually a really important question that we wanted to address because it could be that simply the activity of diving because it's causing the spleen contraction could be increasing spleen size. So what we did to to ask that question was we measured the spleen sizes of Bajo people who were diving and also of those who aren't diving. So at one point in time, all Bajo were diving. Now it's about 50-50 in the population, at least that we visited. So we were able to get about 50% Bajo people who were diving and 50% who weren't. And when we compared those spleen sizes, they all had about the same size spleen. So that pointed to the fact that it might be something genetic rather than something that's happening during their lifetime. Did you find the genes responsible for this? We did, yeah. So we performed a selection scan to look at what regions of the genome of the Bajo have been under selection. And in doing that, we found a variant in the region of this gene, PDE10A. And so what PDE10A does, or one of the things that it does, is to affect thyroid hormone levels. And the variant that we see in the Bajo is associated with higher levels of the thyroid hormone T4. And in mice, it's been shown that if they have extremely low levels of T4, they have a drastic reduction in spleen size. However, that effect is actually shown to be reversible through a T4 injection. So it seems to be that the connection is that the Bajo have these higher thyroid hormone levels, and that's leading to an increased spleen size, which is then leading to an advantage while they're diving. Right. So what does this tell us then? Well, it tells us a number of things. Um, It tells us that There are ways for the human body to adapt to conditions of acute hypoxia. So hypoxia or low oxygen is a really important issue in a lot of medical contexts. And it's been studied in other humans before, but mostly by looking at these high altitude populations that are adapting to living at chronic levels of low oxygen. And so this population is instead adapting to these very acute bouts of low oxygen. So they're just suddenly cutting off their oxygen supply. And it turns out that the body has ways of avoiding the negative effects of that as well. And is there anything we could take forward from this then and um, use medically? Yeah, we're hoping that there could be. Um, A lot of the insights that they got from looking at these high altitude populations have actually already started to translate into medical applications. So we're hoping that we might be able to do the same um, with what we learned from the Bajo and maybe other diving populations. In a lot of um, critical care conditions, when people stop breathing or when they enter into this bouts of acute hypoxia, uh, it seems that people react to this very differently. And uh, it's not really clear why certain people react so poorly to these hypoxic conditions when others don't. And it could be that maybe something we learned from our study and others like it is that there's some kind of genetic predisposition to be able to react in certain ways to these conditions. The telltale spleen. That was Melissa Alardo, and that study was published in the journal Cell. Now, this week, plenty of incredibly brave individuals have been descending on the capital to take part on the London Marathon, which was a little bit of a hot one. But is running a marathon possible for anyone? And what does the training actually do to your body? Well, with us is one of those brave individuals, Christoph Schwening, who is a physiologist and joins us after running the marathon himself. So, Christoph, how was it? Are you OK? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm fine. It was a bit of a struggle getting there. The coach didn't turn up, so we had a bit of a, a rush to get down there. But a wonderful day, a really lively atmosphere and great weather. So uh, the support was fantastic. It was really, really positive. You're saying the journey was harder than the marathon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, a last minute change of plan and suddenly you're shooting down the motorway in a car not 
not sure where you're going to park up and whether you're going to get there or not. And of course, are you going to get to the toilet stop in, in time? And that's really for most marathon runners a major thing. Didn't bother Paula Radcliffe. Uh, well, yeah, and uh, she popped behind. Uh, a I know tree. she did. Not today, uh, obviously, but yeah, she was yeah. And today, uh, but... It happens to an awful lot of runners. More runners uh, lose time over a toilet stop than pretty much anything other than simply hitting the wall. I guess is easier. that because they're taking a lot of water in because they're worried about overhydrating, or is there a physiological what, the reason? They, yeah, well, is there a reason why you need the wee more if you run more? Uh, well, it's not so much the we, I'm afraid. <laughs> right. Right, right, number twos. It's number twos. It's because the whole the, the whole stress of running a marathon actually causes, if you've still got food in your digestive tract, to head downwards. Uh, and once it hits that internal sphincter and bounces around, you're on a limited fuse. So what do you do? I mean, as long oh, as well, what you do, lucky, if you end you up in that position. Time, but, but, but dietary, is there anything you can do yes, ahead I'm, of the marathon there to is, limit uh, that? I mean, every individual is different. But I know my gut transit time. So I know if I stop eating at four o'clock in the afternoon, the day before a marathon, I'm absolutely fine. If I were to indulge, as the rest of the family were, in chips in the evening, uh, then it's going to get messy out on the course. So, and that was uh, me thinking, when you see these athletes looking at their watches, that they're looking at their track time. Actually, they're not. They're, they're looking at how far it is till the next loose stop. Yeah, entirely possible. Wow. So that's the that's side of the marathon I hadn't even considered. But what I was thinking about is the temperature. It's been absolutely gorgeous today. But how did that affect the run and how does what does it do to your body it's so multifactorial the heat plays on just about every physiological system i mean the really big threat of the heat is that you increase the amount of sweat you produce and so you're effectively running along as if you've almost been shot you're losing out this fluid from your blood the blood plasma it's leaking away that because becomes, it's being turned into sweat because it's being turned into sweat and that turning into sweat isn't just a simple process it's a highly trainable process so if you're somebody who's trained to sweat uh, a lot, then you can lose a sweat that really is very dilute. It's almost like pure water, and you can actually osmotically pull water out of your intracellular fluid compartment. So I didn't drink in today's marathon. I was mainly splashing water on myself, and I got faster as I went along. So the second half of the marathon, I finished it one minute faster than the first half. So this dehydration that you get as a result of sweating doesn't need to be performance-limiting for the elites. They'll They'll dump about four to five litres of water out of their body. So by the time they're finishing the marathon and hammering down the mouth, they're actually lighter. And so they need less energy to go faster. While the guys at the back who are drinking a lot, they're heavier by the time they're finishing. And it's getting progressively harder and harder. You said, Christoph, that it's trainable to yes. control sweating. So in what way is it trainable and to what extent can you constrain how much or how do you sweat then? It's trainable in many different ways. So first at the level of the skin itself, these sweat glands, and you've got millions of them across the surface of your skin, you can grow them and make bigger sweat glands. And the bigger sweat glands can not just push out more sweat, but they'll also reabsorb more sodium, so you lose less sodium. But also the drive to them, this thing that we call the sympathetic nervous system, it's part of your peripheral nervous system that you have little conscious control over. You can train that as well, so you get a big adrenal gland. And all of that supports this ability to sweat uh, for prolonged periods of time and to not lose so much circulating blood volume. So that's that's one way that training for a marathon yeah. changes. You get this sort of super sweater. Yeah. What else happens to your body? I mean, how does your body change to be able okay. to do this? Yeah, so... so 
one of the other major uh, uh, changes that occurs is this increase in blood volume, which most people notice as a gradual fall in their heart rate as they do exercise. And what's actually happening is, uh, well, there are multiple different theories, but the most likely is that as you exercise, you're actually pushing a protein called albumin out of the interstitial space, uh, which is outside of the blood vessels all around your body. Not the same stuff you get in eggs. Oh, I'm afraid it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. you've got it floating around. uh, And it it enters into the actual circulatory system and attracts water with it. And that builds a larger circulatory system. And that larger circulatory system means, of course, you can push more blood through your whole body to the skin to lose heat and also through uh, the muscles. But you've got more fluid in the first place when you start off running. And so that loss of two or three litres of fluid during the course of the marathon has less of an impact. But muscles themselves also change, don't they, with the composition, the biochemistry of your muscles as you train? Absolutely. And at that level, there are literally thousands of changes. And this is what makes predicting the time that you can actually do to finish a marathon so difficult. You change the energy that's stored within the muscle, the uh, capillarization, that is the ability to get the blood down to the mitochondria. You get mitochondrial biogenesis. You're actually growing more of these powerhouses within the muscle and you get this gradual change change in what looks like the fibre type. Right, so talking about training, running a marathon, I'd rather get into a a spider's pit, I think. It fills Mm. me with fear. Can anyone learn to run a marathon and how do you go about getting ready for one? Everybody already has what's necessary to run a marathon. And Georgie, you could certainly run a marathon right now. It's just a matter of how long it would take you to complete a marathon. So could you run one kilometre every day? Yes, you could. Could you do it for the next 42 days? Yes, you could. You could run a marathon, but it might take you 42 days to do it. (laughs) The question is, how long does it take to train to get to be able to complete a marathon within the time limit that the marathon sets? So the faster that you want to complete the marathon the more training you have to do and anybody can do it you just simply have to do what gazelles do they don't go to running school you rarely see them sitting around discussing running technique they just run Uh, and really that's all it is it's not rocket science i'm afraid it's not rocket science but i still think i'd take the spiders (laughs) thank you very much christoph schwening for joining us you've definitely earned your rest now (laughs) It's not just the use of a technology, it's also the use of the data and um, what is necessary to enable a safe, socially compatible use of these technologies. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're returning to the scene of the crime with another look at the latest techniques in the world of forensic genetics. Can we really predict physical features from our DNA? Plus, our gene of the month might be more at home at a rave. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Still to come here on The Naked Scientists, a battery revolution, and we're sniffing out what a nightmare might smell like. But first, it's time for another myth conception, and this week Lewis Thompson has been going bananas over this one. All life on Earth shares the same basic code, DNA. And because all living things on Earth share a common ancestor, the DNA code in different organisms is much more similar than you might expect. It's often said that we share 50% of our DNA with bananas. But as similar as our DNA is, it's not that similar. The only organisms you share 50% of your DNA with are your parents and your children. When you were conceived, half of your father's DNA joined with half of your mother's DNA to make your DNA. So where does this banana statistic come from? Is it just complete nonsense? Well, no. 
we do in fact share about 50% of our genes with plants, including bananas. So what's the difference between sharing 50% of our DNA with something and sharing 50% of our genes with something? Well, rather surprisingly, genes, the regions of DNA that code for proteins, only make up about 2% of your DNA. So sharing 50% of our genes with bananas means we only actually share 1% of our DNA with them, not 50. So what's the rest of our DNA for if only 2% of it makes proteins? Well, another 8% is made up of gene regulatory regions. These act like switches to control when and where the genes are turned on and off. But the remaining 90% of our DNA is thought to be mostly non-functional. It's often called junk DNA. Some of this junk DNA is what we call dead genes. These are regions of DNA which used to be functioning genes, but because of mutations in evolution, they no longer make proteins. For example, humans, along with many other mammals, have a dead vitamin C gene. So, whereas some animals can produce their own vitamin C, we have to get it from our diet by eating fruit. There are also regions of junk DNA called jumping genes. When a virus infects a cell, it injects its own DNA into that cell, and this DNA replicates itself as much as it can. When this happens in sperm cells or egg cells, the offspring will have that virus DNA integrated into its own. Because viruses are everywhere, this has happened a lot in evolution, and so about 50% of our DNA is made up of these jumping genes. It's like we have millions of sleeping viruses inside us. They're called jumping genes because they can replicate and jump around, inserting themselves into random places. Thankfully though, we have lots of genes dedicated to stopping these sleeping viruses from waking up. But let's get back to bananas. Even though genes only make up 2% of our DNA, it may still seem surprising that half of the genes we have are also found in bananas. However, animals and plants do share a common ancestor. A single-celled life form, which probably lived about 1.6 billion years ago. The genes that we share with bananas would have been present in that ancestor, and have been passed down to all animals and plants alive today. And the reason that we've kept these genes is that they're involved in fundamental cell processes, like making energy and repairing damage. Just like that single-celled ancestor, and our banana relatives, we need these processes to survive. And so we share half of our genes, but not half of our DNA, with bananas. Lewis Thompson there. And if you have a bit of slippery science you'd like us to take a look at, drop a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, what never grows old? Well, allegedly, it's the burning desire of youth to reinvent the world. And each year, Forbes magazine publishes the Forbes 30 Under 30. It's what they dub their annual encyclopedia of creative disruption. On that list are people sitting on ideas and aspirations that have the potential to change the world. And on the list this year is a group of Cambridge University engineers who want to change the way that batteries work and also the way that we use them. Katie Haler went to find out how. Italian physicist Alessandro Volta is credited with creating the first electric battery in the 1800s. Although this voltaic pile, as it's known, doesn't look much like your average AA, both this and the batteries around today use chemical reactions which produce chemical energy. This is converted to electrical energy, and that's how things are powered in a circuit. These days, lithium ions are where battery power is at. But despite their prevalence in computers, phones, power tools and more, they're not perfect. Here's Jean de la Verpillière from Cambridge University's engineering department and spin-out company Echion. 
I'm sure you're familiar with how the battery of your phone dies out quickly, how it takes time to recharge it, or perhaps you would be happy to switch from a petrol car to an electric car if you could use it more easily or drive longer on a single charge. And that's all down to the performance of the lithium-ion battery. Essentially, we're saying there's a lot of room for improvement. One area, Jean says, is safety. Lithium batteries can be dangerous if used at extreme temperatures or if they get significantly damaged. Another issue is energy density, how much energy you can store in the battery itself before you need to charge it again. But one specific issue that Jean and his colleagues are working on is charging time. So right now, it takes anywhere between 40 minutes and six hours to recharge a battery. What we're doing at Echeon is we're developing new materials that enable batteries to charge seven times faster. So you're talking a full battery charge for your car, for your phone, for whatever, in five minutes. Sounds promising. No more hanging around at a plug socket waiting for my ailing smartphone to come back to life. But how do these super speedy charging batteries work? And what makes them different from other lithium batteries? To find out, we took a trip down to the lab. So that's a material production lab where we make large quantities of a nanomaterial, so hundreds of times smaller than the diameter of your hair. We use this material to actually make electrodes and batteries. That's a piece of kit that uh, enables to make kilogram quantities of nanomaterials that are then used into the battery to store the lithium ions. So the kit that you see here starts from a precursor to our material, uh, which is basically rust. As in the stuff that I have to scrape off my bike? Yes, that's the idea. It's essentially very, very finely divided rust. And because it's nano, we can use it into a battery. It works with lithium ions. So how is the rust involved in the battery? This rust is going to go on the negative electrode of your battery. So that's uh, the component of the battery that stores the lithium ions, the electricity, when you charge the battery. Coating the negative electrode of the battery with very, very small particles of rust gives a much bigger surface area for the reaction with the lithium ions, which means more opportunity for interaction and faster charging. Also, Jean points out, bigger sized particles of rust don't actually interact very well with lithium ions. But why use rust in the first place? If you take the current standard for the the negative electrode of lithium-ion batteries, uh, it's a material called graphite, essentially what you have on your pencils. This graphite material cannot accept fast charge. Fast charging your battery means bombarding your negative electrode with a high rate of lithium-ions. If you try and do this with a graphite battery, the lithium ions will not nicely intercalate and be stored into the graphite. Instead, they will be plated on top of the electrode and you will grow what's called metal dendrites, which are little towers of lithium metal that will short-circuit your whole battery and that will lead to a fire and an explosion using this nanoscale rust. Fundamentally, we can't have this dendrite growth and therefore we can bombard the material with as many lithium ions as you want very fast and it will still be safe and will charge the battery very fast. So nanoscale rust on the negative electrode can safely capture lots of lithium ions at a fast rate. The team are also adding carbon nanotubes to the rust, which act as a sort of electron highway, conducting the heat and electricity out of the electrode. 
So what kind of impact could this technology have? Back in his office, Jean told me that whilst there's still work to do to bring the size of these batteries up to what's needed, charging a car battery in minutes rather than hours could help make electric cars a more practical option for many people. Being able to charge in five minutes basically means that charging becomes painless. You know, five minutes is about the time it takes for you to refill your car at the petrol station. What we're saying is that if you can charge easily, you can recharge more frequently and therefore you don't need to carry a huge battery with you. And that's important because the cost of a battery in an electric car right now is more than 50% of the cost of the vehicle. And that's because we need huge batteries because they charge so slowly. Let's reduce the size of the battery by a factor of four. That will save a lot on cost, also on weight of, of the electric car. Or if you're powering a bus, uh, the, the weight of the battery will be reduced until you'll be able to carry more passengers, for instance. Electrifying stuff, and wouldn't that be fun? Jean de la Verpillier there, ending that report from Katie Haler. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. And we're continuing Senses Month by following the scent of smell. We'll be looking at how smell might be a tool to break addictions and why smell memories are so powerful. But first, what actually is smell and how does it work? Well, with us is Matthew Cobb. He's at the University of Manchester. Matthew, I would ask you, how do you smell? But I know that would probably lead to a terrible joke. So (laughs) generically speaking, when a person inhales and gets a whiff of something nice, what's actually going on? Well, there are molecules in the air which are of varying sizes and shapes, different chemical forms on them. And in ways we don't fully understand, there are cells in the very top of our nasal cavity. In fact, the bits of your brain that are dangling down through the base of your skull at about the level of your eye into the very, very top of your nasal cavity. And as you inhale and breathe through your nose, the molecules waft over those cells and are then captured. It's a bit like a lock and a key, but they're very weird locks and very weird keys. If you imagine the smell is being like a key, then it can bind, go into a particular kind of receptor, which is the lock, and then it it activates, it makes it work in a particular way. But the amazing thing is that each smell can activate more than one kind of cell and each cell can be activated by more than one kind of smell. And even that activation isn't simply binary, so it's not like you're turning a switch and it's either on or off. Cells will respond very, very differently to different smells. They'll give different signals in time to precisely identify the size of a molecule, its particular chemical group and so on. So what we're calling a smell... Actually, that's a mixture of chemicals and it's the way that the nerve cells at the top of our nose interpret that mixture and it's the impression that makes on your nervous system that actually translates into the smell experience we have. Yeah, pretty much. So, for example, in a rose, the smell of a rose, if you try and capture all the uh, molecules that are 
produced by a rose, you'll find over 250 different types of molecule in the centre of the rose. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we detect each one of those, but most of the smells that we detect in the real world are very, very complicated. The smell of bread or vanilla or whatever, they've got lots of complicated components in them, and it's the way that both the peripheral nervous system, which I've just been describing, but also the bits of the brain, how they put that information together, that produces our perception of what a smell's like. And these receptors, which are a bit like chemical docking stations that are picking up these smell molecules, they're encoded by our genes, are they? That's right. So you've got about 4 million smell cells and they're divided into about 400 types. And each of those types is encoded by a single gene. So there's a gene, we've got lots and lots of genes that produce these particular proteins that are the the docks on the receptor that enable you to detect a particular range of smells. So if this is genetic then, that means that I've inherited my ability to smell from my ancestors. So do we think that uh, early human ancestors would have smelled smells the same way or experienced smells the same way I and you do today? Yeah, well, we can go and understand that by going and looking to see in the genome of, for example, the Neanderthals and this mysterious people called the Denisovans. And we have their genomes. So we have these genomes from our very close relatives and we can find the same genes that we have to produce these proteins. And in one particular case that we've been studying, we can actually identify the particular smell that that receptor encodes. Because as I said, for most smells, then they're detected by more than one kind of receptor and each receptor responds to different kinds of smells. There's one exception to that in the human case and that's something that's called androstenone, which is often suggested to be a, a human pheromone. It isn't, but what it is is something that varies substantially between different individuals. So, for example, this response to that in different people is different. I think this smells quite sweet. Many other people think it smells absolutely disgusting, like back alleys, blokes have been peeing down there, really foul rank smell. Other people can't smell it. Other people, again, thinks it smells quite sexy. And we can identify the basis of that physiological, that psychological response on the basis of single letter changes in the DNA that encodes the protein. So we can, if we have your DNA sequence, we can tell you, we can predict how you're going to respond to this smell. And if you respond in a particular way, we can predict your DNA sequence. So what, uh, together with some colleagues uh, in America, Kara Hoover and Hiro Matsunami, what we did was to go and look at the genome of Neanderthals and Denisovans and say, well, how would you have responded to this smell? And what we found was that the the Neanderthals would, like most peoples uh, from modern sub-Saharan Africa, will think that this smells absolutely disgusting. They would have hated it. The Denisovans were very exciting because the Denisovans had a variant that we have not seen in any human population. And would that variant have made them like the smell? Well, that's what we had to find out. So we had to rebuild the nose, the Denisovan nose. So this is a cell that hasn't existed for... 50,000, 60,000 years. And we changed a normal human cell very, very slightly, changed the gene so that it now had the same sequence as the Denisovan version. And then we poured this androstenone over the cell, more or less, to try and see how it responded. And it didn't make any difference. (laughs) This is what kind of what we expected, is that we know from the distribution of the I really don't like it type in the modern world that 
mainly this is a this is the ancestral form. It's the form that came out of Africa. So the the Neanderthals and the Denisovans also had that form. So we've got in a modern situation, some people like myself think it smells quite sweet. And the interesting thing about this stuff is that it is produced by pigs. It is in fact a pig pheromone. And if you are eating pigs and you don't castrate the boars, then your meat will actually start tasting of this stuff, which some people find very unpleasant. And one of the things we suspect is that the mutation to enable us to find this stuff not so unpleasant and actually quite nice for some people may have arisen in the same time and place around 7,000 years ago in the Far East where we started to domesticate pigs. So we think that perhaps uh, agriculture has a genetic origin. Just to finish, though, Matthew, very importantly, what about people who don't have any sense of smell, anosmia? Well, that's incredibly significant in that you smell with your brain, but you taste with your nose. If you try eating something and you hold your nose, it doesn't taste very much. So smell is extremely important, not only as you're going to be talking about for memory, but also for basic enjoyment of life, taste. And if you lose your sense of smell, in particular through an injury, a head injury, or even if you've never had a sense of smell through genetic factors, that can be very debilitating. And if you have, any of your listeners have recently lost their sense of smell, there's a fantastic charity called fifthsense.org.uk check it out their website they've got some great self-help groups there are some solutions Matthew Cobb very interesting stuff he's at the University of Manchester now smell is a mysterious sense in many ways but one thing that struck researchers is that strong smells mostly don't wake you up there are some exceptions researchers in Japan are developing a wasabi scented fire alarm for deaf people but most odors can really reek and you'll still stay asleep so this gave scientists an opportunity to look at a hot topic which is whether or not we can learn in our sleep audiobooks that supposedly teach you another language while you doze are still being sold but there's no evidence that they actually work and at Arzi at the University of Cambridge wanted to investigate whether smells might be a different story and whether we can learn to associate odors in our sleep and all this might end up providing a way to help people quit smoking. Here's an ad. We used a unique measure that we have in olfaction, and this is the sniff response. So I can tell if you like or dislike an odor only if I measure your respiration. For example, if you go by your favorite bakery and they just bake a fresh bread, you will take a deep inhale. However, If you go by a public toilet, you might take a small inhale. And this change in nasal airflow in accordance with the properties of the odor is the sniff response. And we are having a sniff response like every day on a daily basis automatically without being aware of it. And what we discovered that we also have it during sleep. So while you're asleep, you can perceive information from the environment and generate an adequate behavioral response a large sniff for a pleasant odour and a small sniff for an unpleasant odour. Right, so when people are sleeping, if you shoved a croissant in front of their nose, they might go, mmm, still not waking up, but you know that means that they like the smell. And I suppose that makes sense because if there is a nasty smell, it's probably not a good idea for us to inhale a whole load of it. Exactly. The sniff is a smart mechanism for us. And then after discovering that, hey, we have this super cool implicit measure for processing and sleep, we said, okay, let's see if we can test with this, if we can learn during sleep. To test this, Anat and her team looked at one of the simplest form of learning, conditioning, where you learn to associate two things together. 
So they took some people while they were asleep and played them a note. And then they paired that note repeatedly with a bad smell, like rotten fish or eggs. This resulted in a small sniff response. And then they also gave some people a note and paired it with a nice smell, like shampoo. And this would have resulted in a larger sniff response. But then, later in that night, they looked at what happened when they played only the tones without the smell. What we discovered is that when we presented the conditioning during sleep, people then, during the same night of sleep, took a different sniff to the tone depending on which odor was perfect. So if I presented a tone with no odor whatsoever now during sleep, then the person took a smaller sniff if the tone was associated with an unpleasant odor. This means that sleeping humans can learn new association during sleep and implement them within the same night. And then to test whether actually they can retrieve this information in the morning, we presented the same tones up on awake. And we discovered that also when they wake up, they change their sniff to the tones even when there is no odor there. And this means that they can learn new association in sleep and retrieve them again upon awake. Did they have any awareness? Were they aware of why they were doing this smell? Or were they like, oh, that's odd? Excellent question. And absolutely not. So we asked them if they smelled anything during the night or if they heard anything. And they said no. They had no clue. So does this kind of learning last for longer than the next morning? To find out more, Anat and her team decided to look at smoking. And what we did, we invited to our lab people who are smokers who wanted to quit smoking. And then while they were sleeping, we presented a cigarette odor that was paired with profoundly unpleasant odor. And we make sure that they really dislike this odor before they went to bed. And then we asked them uh, to fill a smoking diary. So they were uh, filling seven days before the experiment how many cigarettes they were smoking every day and then seven days after the night in the lab. And we presented the conditioning either during non-REM sleep or during REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And what we discovered that if we uh, conditioned the cigarette odor with profoundly unpleasant odor during non-REM sleep, people reduce smoking in about 30% in the week after the conditioning in the lab. And if they were conditioned during REM sleep, then they reduce smoking only in about 10%. What was fascinating was when their conditioning was presented during wake and they knew what is happening, they didn't change their smoking habits. So only when the conditioning was implicit, it reduced smoking. So it doesn't mean that uh, we found uh, the ultimate uh, treatment for smoking, not at all, but it's a proof of concept that learning during sleep can modulate behavior during wake. My question is then, were you a little bit worried doing this study that by pairing the nasty smell, a sort of pooey smell, with the smell of cigarettes, were you a bit worried it might have gone the other way and they'd started to really get a bit addicted to the smell of poo? Um, I think the unpleasant odor are so unpleasant and the cigarette odor, even for smoker, is not that nice that it wasn't a big concern. Now you've got this proof of concept that we can, we can learn these basic things in our sleep and what's really interesting is it only seems to work when we're asleep. So what does this tell us about the brain and, and what next for the research? Um, so there are several different lines of research we can continue from here and 
many open questions. So one of them is to understand what is possible to learn during sleep. Is it something that is unique to the sense of smell or we can learn different basic uh, form of learning during sleep as well? And we still have a lot of work uh, to do in order to understand where is the line between what we can learn in sleep and what we cannot Absolutely fascinating. That was Anat Arzi from the University of Cambridge. It really is intriguing. Now, of course, being able to learn things depends upon memory, which is very closely linked to smell. We've all experienced, for instance, that feeling where you catch a whiff of something and it instantly transports you back to an occasion from long ago. So why is this and why are smells so memorable? With us is Andy Johnson. He's at the University of Bournemouth where he looks into this. Andy, why do smells summon memories in this way? Well, this is a very common phenomenon that our participants will often report. And one possible explanation is related to the structure of the brain. So the limbic system contains the system within the brain that deals with uh, smell, but also within that system is the memory and the uh, emotion system. So because of their close proximity, it is possible that this leads to these very strong associations between particularly emotional memories and smells. So a smell elicits activity in a very similar bit of the brain to where you store memories. And so you're saying there's a, there's a strong overlap between the two. Exactly right. Uh, another account is that uh, odours, at least at a perceptual level, uh, are thought to be a, a single feature stimulus. Uh, so it's a lot easier for odours to associate with, with events compared to, say, for example, a visual stimulus, which is made up of lots of different components. Now, we were talking earlier to Matthew Cobb, who was explaining that when I smell something a whole constellation of different odorant chemicals goes up my nose and binds onto nerve endings at the top of my nose, activates those nerve endings, and these are then used to drive different parts of the brain and a sort of smell fingerprint pattern is established in my brain. So how do I actually remember then what smell is what? So there is there is one account that, that uses this kind of configuration or, or pattern of receptors uh, that are activated. So it's been suggested that um, within the kind of uh, olfactory cortex, you might uh, process and then store this particular pattern of receptors that have been activated uh, by a specific odour. And when we're exposed to an odour, we then kind of cross-check or, or reference the current pattern or configuration with that which is stored uh, within, our, within our memory. However, once... Um, we've made that kind of familiarity judgment once we've gone, OK, I think there's a match and this, this odour is familiar. We're actually very bad at then going on to identify what that odour is. And one of the possible reasons for that is an evolutionary one in that we didn't really need to be able to identify odours because it was a close or near sense where we were essentially making a good, bad judgment, typically about food, you know, whether we spit or whether we swallow. And therefore, being able to identify the odour wasn't really necessary. So what are the studies that you're doing to try and understand how smell and memory are linked? So our main focus is to look at the extent to which smell memory or short-term memory for odours works in a similar way to other types of stimuli. So we're, we're examining whether there's evidence that, that smell memory is in some way different. Looking at odour memory is is fraught with, with quite a few challenges. Um, so the first thing is when you're looking at, at smell memory, what you really want to be measuring is smell memory, which might sound kind of obvious, but the default strategy that people use in memory tasks is to try and verbalise. So they'll always try and assign a verbal label to those odours to make it easier. So we initially have to try and make that harder by our selection of odours and also by giving them secondary tasks to do that might use up their their, their verbal system. So we have to try and um, change some of the existing memory tasks which um, are kind of weighted heavily towards verbal memory so that they can be applied to odours. So what have you found so far? 
invariably the answer is it depends and that's that's the same with our work so on some studies we find that odor memory works in a very similar way to say visual and verbal memory and other times it seems to be a bit different so we have these mixed findings and one of the possible explanations for that is we see across the literature generally a lack of control over the odors that people are using in the in this research and there is some evidence to suggest that we process nameable and hard to name odors differently so there's an imaging study showing that different parts of the brain are activated for odors that are easy to name compared to odors that are hard to name and why does this matter why is this important andy that you're able to put a finger on this uh well i mean personally i think it's interesting because we we don't know much about smell memory relative to other senses but i appreciate that everyone is not as exciting as me so the other kind of big exciting element about smell memory is that it's been shown to to some extent to be predictive of of Alzheimer's onset. So there is a study that examines people with a very rare gene that looks at early onset Alzheimer's. And people who have that gene have been shown to be poorer at odour recognition, even though they don't show any other clinical signs. And there's other studies also looking at people with mild cognitive impairment, so not a kind of uncommon feature of, of getting older. And those people with poor odour identification were at higher risk of developing uh, Alzheimer's later down the line. So you could potentially use this as, as maybe a screening test to see who might be at risk of things like dementia. To some extent, but it's important with all these kind of predictive studies, the biggest predictor of dementia is old age. So that kind of accounts for the vast amount of the variance. Andy, thank you very much. We must leave it there. That's Andy Johnson. He's at the University of Bournemouth. Now, it wouldn't be right to talk about smell without mentioning man's best friend. Dogs have incredible olfactory capabilities. Compared with the 4 million smell receptors in the average human nose, a dog has 300 million, and the brain region devoted to decoding smells is roughly 40 times bigger than our own. As a result, the things they can smell continue to amaze us, from bacterial infections to cancer. And now the UK College of Scent Detection has even trained dogs to recognise the smell of nightmares. But why? I spoke to Rob Hewings, head manager at the UK College of Scent Detection, to find out how they go about training a dog to learn a new smell. For example, a competition favourite, gun oil. Uh, The first thing we'll do is we'll pair the gun oil. We'll classically condition that scent so that the dog knows every time I sniff gun oil, something great's going to happen. Whether it's, I sniff gun oil, I get my toy. Wow, this is like the best thing ever. I sniff gun oil, I get a fantastic treat. This is the best thing ever. So we can we can set it up so they I can put a couple of drips of gun oil in a, an appropriate container, get the dog to sniff it, drop a treat in, and I sniff, and I, I eat my treat, I sniff, I eat my treat, I sniff, I eat my treat. And then we store that scent of gun oil in their scent library. And as soon as they get that association classically conditioned, and we can go all the way back to Pavlov's Bell where the dogs were classically conditioned to expect food, these dogs are classically conditioned to realise that the scent of gun oil, for example, get something great for them. And it's all on uh, force-free, friendly training. It's all great fun. OK, and then um, and then basically if they smell that any time, they'll be like, oh boy, here comes yep. a treat. Yep, exactly right. Then we teach them what to do when they find gun oil. We're just teaching them an indication because they need to know, when I sniff this scent, I need to do something for you. I need to tell me, me daft fat dad, that I've found something. So we ask them to to either do a freeze on all four feet on the ground, staring at the contact scent, or they might sit, or worst case scenario or best case scenario, if they find something like explosive, they need to step back a little way and stare right at the area where they found it 
so that the handler can deal with that problem. So the first thing we do is classically condition the scent. Next of all, teach them what to do when they find it, the indication, which takes us a long, long time. And after the indication, then we can introduce the super sexy search stuff. And how does the super sexy search stuff work? <laughs> we gradually, gradually build search. So I use um, a lot of equipment, for example, um, pots and pipes, and I'll put them in uh, long linear lines, and I'll move the contact scent from one pipe to another, move it around. And he'll sniff along the lines, and he knows what to do when he sniffs. He knows what to do, so he'll stand with his nose in the pot and freeze. Then we'll add two rows, and then three rows, and then I might move the pots and pipes to different levels, different surfaces, and then eventually make the gun oil smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, so it's just on the tip of a cotton bud, tiny, tiny amount. And you can imagine with that little bit of cotton wool, cotton bud, we could hide that anywhere in a room, and the dog could come in and start searching that room and get some fantastic results. There are facts that are out saying that a dog can find one trillionth of a gram of TNT whilst he's searching. And that's an unbelievable measurement. What are the various different reasons people train dogs to smell? It can be a vast, vast amount of reasons. We've got the enrichment. We've got the fact that when a dog is searching, when he's sniffing, it releases dopamine in the brain. So they, they love it. They, that's just great. So that's your family pet dog enjoying life as much as he can enjoy it. But let's deal with it on how dogs can help humanity. I've trained an epilepsy alert dog that can give the handler 20 minutes notice upon an epileptic attack. We all know about diabetes alert. But more interestingly than that, I'm working with an excellent charity at the moment, Bravehound, um, which are a Scottish veterans charity. And they deal with our veterans that have given so much in their lives back to us. So they've, they've gone to Afghanistan, um, Iraq, Northern Ireland. They have given their all. And now, now they're back. And some of them suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. These guys have nightmares and daytime anxiety attacks. And together with Bravehound, the UK College of Scent Detection are working on a research project that involves training the dogs to recognise the scent of nightmares. And when that scent of a nightmare sparks off a thought process in the dog, so the scent of the nightmare becomes the antecedent, something that makes that dog do something, the behaviour, the dog gently gets up onto the client's chest and ever so gently licks his neck or does whatever that we've trained the dog to do to appease that client. And then the consequences are the client is woken up, the nightmare stops, he's got his best buddy alongside him, and then the dog goes back to sleep. Client can go back to sleep with the confidence to know that if this nightmare happens again, he'll be woken up. Some clients won't go to sleep because of this nightmare fear. And to, to put yourself through sleep deprivation is torture. Right. And so for these, these nightmares, do we have any idea what the smell of a nightmare actually is? <clears throat> I would love to just put my cards on the table and say it's, it's, it must be some kind of mixture with cortisol for the stress hormones or adrenaline, but I think that mixture is unique to the person. So the dog has to be trained on that person. And what we do is we take sweat samples and the person tells us, I had a dreadful nightmare last night, these are my sweat samples, and we work off those sweat samples. Right, so you, you sort of have an individual nightmare profile for yep. someone. And then has this been shown then that it does work, that the dog can sense the difference between a nightmare and just a normal sleep and be a nice dream? Yeah, absolutely. Our clients in the past have shown it does work. 
yes, it is successful. It's happening in America. I've been across to Oregon in the USA. I have a charity working for me in Oregon doing exactly the same thing. And eventually what I hope to do is share the knowledge. So the UK College of Scent Detection, we're sitting around and I think one of us, one of the brave guys in the college has got to put pen to paper and write a paper on this. <laughs> We've got to share it. Now, that's absolutely extraordinary. That was Rob Hewings from the UK College of Scent Detection. Who would have thought that you could detect the smell of a nightmare? It's fascinating stuff. And while we're on the subject of amazing smellers, we've just got time for Super Sensor of the Week. So who's our candidate for the best sniffer? You might be imagining sharks win this title, but we've got a fluffier winner this week. Presenting the case, here's Andrew DeRocher from the University of Alberta. If there are champions among mammals with an excellent sense of smell, polar bears are certainly on the podium. The bears rely on their sense of smell as they hunt across huge areas of snow-covered ice. The short hunting season is a compelling force. What happens during the spring hunt may determine life or death, reproducing or not. The main prey of polar bears are ring seals, which are hugely abundant and less than keen to be eaten. At their most vulnerable to predation in the spring when giving birth to pups and mating, Ring seals make dens under the snow that piles up on top of the jagged ice. These dens have an underwater escape route to the ocean below. The key to being a successful polar bear is locating these seal dens. To do so, the bears rely on their keen sense of smell. All seals have a fishy smell, and during the breeding season, males have an odor reminiscent of used sports socks and petrol. Such a stink might be easy to find out in the open, but once under a meter or more of snow, polar bears have to pinpoint the precise location of the seal. How far away can a polar bear smell a seal? Lacking controlled experiments, we don't have great insights, but given there can be hundreds or thousands of seals within a day's walk, the bears really need their sense of smell to provide the seal's exact location. Tracking bears over the ice, it's clear that bears use wind to their advantage. Walking crosswind provides a smorgasbord of seal smells, but some are obviously more enticing and provoke a sudden upwind stalk. Walking on sea ice is a bit like walking on a drum. One false crunch in the snow and your dinner will escape. The bears use their sense of smell to get close and then use snow structure, possibly even sound made by the seals, to make their final pounce. If the bear has done its job, it's a seal dinner. Thank you, Andrew, and especially because he put that together for us while he's in the Arctic tracking some of those polar bears. If you have a candidate for our final sensor, which is our super feeler, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientist or join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. The programme was put together by Georgia Mills. And do join us next week for our final episode of Senses Month when we'll get the feel for the science of sensation. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. This is The Naked Scientist. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.